The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Steampunk Deer Edition. It's Wednesday, February 13th, 2019. On today's show, Barry Jenkins blew the world away with the movie Moonlight. He's back now with If Beale Street Could Talk, an adaptation of the James Baldwin novel. And The Masked Singer is a glitzy, lowbrow singing competition show with a twist. The contestants are celebrities dressed up in elaborate disguises. You only find out who they are when they lose. Uh, We're joined by Mike Pesca to talk about this improbable brew. And finally, why does uh, one recipe go viral and another one not go viral? We discuss, uh, among many things, the chickpea stew recipe that went crazy. All right, joining me today is, the, of course, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, uh, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, sir. And, of course, uh, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Shall we just dive in? All right, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight was a cinematic rhapsody, a story of a queer boy coming of age. Uh, It was rhapsodized in turn. Critics and audiences loved it. It, of course, won the big awards, uh, and we very much loved it. He's returned now with If Beale Street Could Talk. It's based on a 1974 novel by the incomparable James Baldwin. Um, This movie, I should say, is both written and directed by Jenkins. It tells the story of two young lovers in New York City in the early 1970s. Tish, 19, who falls in love with Fani, her childhood friend. Um, She becomes pregnant with his child, but before they can get married, Fani is falsely accused of rape. He's thrown in jail where he's awaiting trial as Tish's form fills out with their child. The story's told in nonlinear fashion, switching back and forth between the oasis of innocence, hope, and sensuality that is the love affair. It's quite beautifully done, I think. Uh, And Fani's grim scapegoating by the criminal justice system. Why don't we listen to a clip? Here we are. Hey, I know it doesn't look like much right now, but um, we're not done. You see, you you gotta imagine that there's like walls all the way up and down here and... I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's a work in progress. Yeah, see, Tish, it's, it's not done. It's a work in progress. Ronnie, I'm sorry, but how are we gonna make this into a home? Look, look, imagine our walls, right? Over here and over here. But where are we gonna cook and sleep and bathe? I mean, where are my mama and them gonna sit? Easy. Look, I put a couch right over here, huh? Mama, Daddy, maybe even Ernestine, right? And the bed I put all the way back there, right against the wall. So I can see that pretty light on your face when the sun rises. Uh, that's a beautifully chosen clip. That's one of my favorite scenes from the movie, Dana. As always, I'm curious to know what you uh, what you made of this movie. You know, it took me two viewings to really get this movie. Not that I didn't like it the first time. I was sort of seduced and fascinated by it, but didn't quite understand what Jenkins was trying to do. And after a second viewing, I, I now love it. Um, hmm. This movie is extremely beautiful in a way that could almost be be held against it in some ways in that the shine of the surface and the sound of it it's the beautiful beautiful soundtrack by Nicholas Bratel who we've had on the show before and who composed our theme song has written this extraordinary orchestral score that pervades the whole movie so sonically and visually it's this lovely thing and yet it's about essentially the injustice of the penal system and about systemic racism and it could easily have been filmed in a dark gritty kind of style the kind of style that this material is usually presented in and instead Jenkins has decided to make this utterly stylized and and crafted object and so it moves very slowly as you say it's not 
a lot of story. It really is a lot about gazing and looking, about us yeah. looking at the two lovers and the lovers looking at each other and out on the world. And as you say, it has this unusual temporal structure where where we move in between romantic scenes like the ones we just heard, really achingly romantic scenes of this young couple making a life together and these terrible scenes where Fani is in jail. And we know right from the beginning, it's not a spoiler that he goes to jail. We learn about it in the second scene. So every time you cut back again to the beautiful, glowing, pastel colors of their their love together, and so even the romantic scenes are, are suffused with this kind of horror of, of everything that's to come. It's, it's just a, it's a movie in which everything is, is very thought out and deliberate. And that may make it feel to some audiences somewhat unspontaneous. And it's interesting to me that while Moonlight really caught on, especially for the size of film that it was and, and what it was about and how unknown the filmmaker was at the time, Moonlight was quite a hit with audiences for the for the scale of a release that it had. And this movie sort of wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a flop, but it hasn't been a huge part of the awards conversation. It's up for a few awards, but doesn't seem likely to sweep them. It's a movie that's a little bit of an outlier in that that way, because I think it really captures something about what beauty is doing in this movie, what the work of beauty is, and that it's not just slathered on top to make things look nice. I'm just going to read one paragraph from Justin Chang's great review of Beale Street Could Talk. But there's more to this movie than a patina of glamour. We are not often accustomed to seeing images of working-class life through anything besides a grotty kitchen sink filter. We are not often reminded, frankly, that there is much here to look at. The formal ravishment of If Beale Street Could Talk thus takes on an implicitly political dimension. It may well be the movie's stealthiest, most radical display of empathy. I think that's that's really so true. I mean, what this movie does that a lot of movies about black life and black love don't do is show beauty, joy, humor, playfulness, the actual life, the contents of the life that's being cut off by Fonny's unjust imprisonment. And so rather than the focus being on the injustice, the focus is on the joy, which makes the injustice all the sadder. Uh, that is so beautifully put. Julia, um, what did you make of the movie? I think Dana really n- hit the nail on the head. This movie, I think, is actually extremely radical, but it's hard to discern that at first because it's so still and implacable in its profound regard for the love that binds its main characters together. And because, as you guys both noted, there is... um there's kind of a glacial, inevitable, horrifying injustice in it, but there's not a lot of surprise in the plot. I think that may be part of what has made it less of a viral phenomenon than Moonlight is um, just the stillness of the story. But the thing that that makes it profound, I think, is just that exact thing you put your finger on in Justin's review, Dana, which is spending this much time appreciating the beauty of love in this black family, um, both romantic love and then the familial bonds as the as their extended family, for the most part, um, steps in to try to support and help the young couple as they face this injustice. And, um, you know, her pregnancy feels really novel, even as the movie feels kind of like a river flowing by that you can't you know, that, that the, the humans in it don't seem to have much power to affect the events. And that's always the screenwriting thing, right? Are people able to generate action? Are they driving the story? And I think the thing that, that is happening here is that, of course, the main characters aren't driving the story. Injustice is driving the story. And yet we're spending time with them in the face of that injustice. And the film does that in a lot of really interesting ways. One thing that struck me about it is just how much of the movie is close-ups of faces, talking to each other, watching each other. Um, You're just spending an enormous amount of time staring at emotions 
playing across black faces. Um, and that also feels like something you don't, you know, obviously the classic tight Hollywood two shot is, uh, is, is something you see lots on film, but, um, you spend a lot of time here looking at things that cameras don't always look at. Yeah, Julie, just about spending a lot of time with faces. I mean, the unusual framing of those faces is also worth noting in that there's a lot of head-on camera staring. There's a lot of moments where essentially we, the audience, are converted into either the the beloved that's being stared at by one of the, the two lovers or a family member who's who's helping them. There's moments of direct, not addressed to the camera, speaking into the camera, but looking into the camera. And that is also a really unusual choice. It's It's really marked how often Jenkins chooses to just leave the camera squarely on a character's face as they look directly at us and makes you realize that that kind of framing doesn't happen that often, especially in a, in a realist film. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the movie is really not rooted in dramatic conflict in any kind of traditional way. And you have to accept that about it in order to let it work on you. And as with Moonlight, you know, he has this genius for showing, you know, human sensuality uh, and, and asking sort of implicitly and explicitly what part of the intrinsic beauty of life can be reserved for black experience when, Julia, as you say, black experience is so not driven by individually determined human agency because large historical and, and uh, historical and structural intrusions happen in the lives of ordinary black people on a minute, you know, minute by minute basis. And for that, this movie is just masterful. I mean, you know, there's an Edenic simplicity and innocence to the love affair because they were childhood friends. I mean, the movie makes a fairly big deal about that and is captivating because of it. And so the the wonderful irony of a relationship like that is like going through puberty is thought of as a continuum of their feelings for one another. Um, the movie's very definite about that. There isn't some sudden discovery of their own sexuality that's in any way alienating from what they were prepubescently to one another. I mean, the and and, and believably so. I mean, the, the 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 performances by the leads, Kiki Lane and Stefan James, really carry it. But you know, the movie's very definite about and very plausible about the innocence of these two and their love, and just everything else about it everything extrinsic extrinsic to it he manages jenkins as a filmmaker manages to both be dreamy and sensual and in a way if you'll pardon me for saying it proustian and totally politically motivated uh and and racially politically motivated which is an and the and the way those two things go together in his work is so distinctive like why don't African-Americans or black people in this country have the right to intrinsically beautiful experiences. Like that's the crime, like like understanding that, that it's that intrusion, right? It's not his experience in the jail, which very indirectly actually through the exposition of another character, black character who's been in jail, we know is brutalizing, but it's not about that. It's about it's about the sweetness, the intrinsic sweetness and beauty of life. And when you steal that from individuals, you dehumanize them. But the one thing I will say, Julia, is that is that you you have to really not want traditional dramatic conflict to 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 totally appreciate this movie. And I was not always sure that I could go with it into its languors. Um, there's an early scene where the two families, the respective families of the lovers, uh, have 
deep conflict. One is an incredibly pious, religiously pious family who sees the baby as as sinful, and the other doesn't at all. I mean, loves the fact that these two have ended up together. Um, and that's a very traditionally dramatic scene. Very little of the movie is like that. And I, I kind of, it's probably on me that I wanted more, but I'm curious what, what you thought. I think that's part of what makes the movie a little bit of a sleeper is that, right, you you don't have the heroes of the story driving their own fates. And obviously it's a fantasy that anybody totally drives their own fate. But in a way, part of what this movie is doing formally is suggesting that the actual plot expectations of a Hollywood movie are informed by a kind of white privilege, like the notion of like, of course, humans are the fates mm-hmm. that are the authors of their own existence. Of course, protagonists, right. uh, you know, they 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 try, right? That's that they try to do things and they um, and they change outcomes. Um, and we don't have we have protagonists who try and through trying demonstrate their love and their grit and their fortitude but who cannot affect outcomes. And I found myself wondering after I saw this movie, there are a couple white characters, two or three, who um, are benevolent forces. There are several white characters who are vile forces and who are, including one in particular, who's responsible for the unjust charge against Fani. But um, there, you know, the the in the scene we heard of them checking out the loft, we have a brief cameo by Dave Franco, who... Um, is sort of like, sure, I'll rent you this place because I respect love. That's the way my mama raised me. And I was sort of like, what are these weird white heroes doing in this story? There's also a woman who runs a, you know, kind of a charcuterie shop in Little Italy um, and, you know, who who vouches for the couple in the face of a, a police officer who's skeptical of them. Um, and then I sort of realized, oh, right, even these benevolent figures have so much more power than the protagonists of our story. Um, and the the fact right. that they have chosen to use their social authority in favor of the couple rather than against them, you know, obviously that's better than the alternative. But once again, we have these heroes who are, who are, you know, we're just rapturously in touch with their humanity because of Jenkins's filmmaking, but structurally they cannot drive the story. So there's this like radical formal storytelling thing that he's doing that feels really different than what we're used to seeing on film. And I think that's part of what's, you know, makes you shift in your seat maybe at moments of the movie, because it is not, um, like I said, it's not a a rip-roaring entertainment all the way through, but it's just so beautiful and unusual. And I I can totally imagine um, having the experience you did, Dana, of watching it twice and feeling like you really sank into it on the second go. I, 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 my admir- admiration and love for this movie has kind of been kind of steadily blooming since I saw it, I think. I feel like I have to, we have to jump in and mention the supporting performances a little bit, especially because one of them is nominated for an Oscar. And I think she is actually has a decent chance, to, given how recognized her performance has been throughout award season. And that's Regina King as the mother of Tish, the character played by Kiki Lane. And although Regina King has gotten some attention for that performance, another supporting actor who's just extraordinary in this is Brian Tyree Henry, um, who we've sp- talked about before as Paperboy in Atlanta, the show Atlanta, and uh, and who also had a, a small but important part in Widows, the movie we talked about recently. 
recently. But he has really essentially just one scene, right? One long scene with Stephen James where he sits and talks about his own experience of incarceration. And he's just incredible. It's a it's a awards nomination worthy performance that makes me want to follow that actor, whatever he does. All right. Well, the movies, if Beale Street could talk, uh, we all more or less loved it. Um, uh, be curious to know what you guys thought. Go check it out and uh, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, we uh, no doubt we have business. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, our only business today is to tell our Slate Plus listeners what we will be talking about in our Slate Plus segment. We decided to talk this week about Jill Abramson, former editor of The New York Times, and her new book, Merchants of Truth, which has come under some serious fire in the past week for plagiarism accusations, which seem pretty credible and disturbing. So we're going to talk about that scandal and about journalistic plagiarism in general. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, a way to support our show and all the other shows you love at Slate. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and other Slate shows. And in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and a ton of other great benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right. Um, we're joined now by Mike Pesca, radio veteran. So I want you, Mike, um, before we sort of dig in more fully, to put on your best like basso profundo broadcaster voice and say the following sentence. Can you recognize your favorite celebrity just by their voice? Can you recognize your favorite celebrity, given that they are a B-list or C-list celebrity? So we're really picking from a shallow pool of celebrities. That said, from just their voice. (laughs) The disguises are elaborate. Steve McQueen meets uh, the team mascot, and the performances are all over the map and all over the top. Uh, Celebrities of various grades. A minus through D plus is where I'm, or maybe B plus through D plus is where I'm kind of rating it. Don the gear, disguising themselves, then perform a song for a panel of uh, also ran celebrity judges. They, in addition to that, answer some questions about their true identity using a voice disguiser software. And whoever loses is unmasked. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip and then we'll dig in with Mike Pesca. I have to ask the panel, who in the world do you guys think is under this poodle mask. Uh, uh, you know, uh, honestly, I, I've been a little confused because there's been a lot of court stuff, and I'm going to stick with a, a, a very fit Judge Judy. Remember the Bay Area clue that one time? Yeah, yeah. And there was a workout thing involved. In the first package, there was a whole LGBTQ vibe going right, on, right. and the whole workout. So oh, I said yeah. Jillian Michaels. Who is this, Joe? I think you said Jillian Michaels. Jillian Michaels. Jillian Michaels. Yeah. Now remember the whole clue about doing stand up and all that stuff. The female uh, comedians. Yes, I think it's a comedian. And Kathy Griffin was on The Apprentice. She was fired there. Kathy Griffin is my choice. Always good to go with Kathy Griffin if you're trying to guess a C-list celebrity, right? I mean, she's, it's just statistically you're likely she to be right. She did lead a life on, was it the C-list or the D-list? Oh, if that it, was her show. Yes, the D-list. Although with some of these, like Antonio Brown to a football fan is an A-list celebrity and to everyone else is an F-list. So I guess he's, a C, by definition, a C-list celebrity. 
Mike Pesca is off to the races without a question. Mike, I love I go into a show like this like Heidegger, just dreading it, like the end times vibe and like just let the species and the planet die with it. But um within five minutes I'm putting it in the hands of Fox uh, the Fox television network. I mean, it is a great idea for a show, right? It's we should say that it's it's a copy of a show from South Korea, right? It's yes. a, it's an adaptation of an existing reality show. And that's I, I do think that's one of the things that gives it a little more appeal than the uh, quick synapse, uh, almost dopamine rush, but sugar high. It's really a sugar high. Um, so my analysis of this, and I watched the show because my kids were interested in it, and in the office, a fairly two fairly elaborate masks showed up to try to uh, hook us into the conceit of the show, and it kind of worked. I wore the lion mask for a little bit. People were freaked out. They knew who I was, though. So I would say that the beginning and the end are great. The beginning... The conceit is intriguing enough, but the very first thing you see are these costumes, and the costumes are fantastic. I read an interview with the costumer, and they're really thoughtful, and they try to do a couple different things. To some extent, they aren't soft and sweet, and they are a little uh, Pan's Labyrinthian. I could see them, for some of them, being with sharp edges, the stuff of nightmares. But I think they're very uh, compelling, well-done, well-thought-out costumes. An example of a detail from a costume, I just have to jump in and say, the reason this is the steampunk deer edition of the Gabfest is because I I was just dazzled by the deer costume. I don't know who's behind it yet. But it looks like it's a crazy, dark, apocalyptic costume where the face of the deer looks like a World War One gas mask. Yes. Uh, and we do know who's behind it. And I it haven't was, gotten there yet. Oh, you ha- do you want me to ruin sure, it? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Spoil okay, away. So episode one's celebrity was uh, Pittsburgh Steeler wide receiver Antonio Brown. And episode two, the deer is former Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback Terry Bradshaw. They're pulling extensively, not just from the NFL, but from the Pittsburgh Steelers. The judges were close. <laughs> they knew it was an athlete behind that costume. Right. There is a weird... There is a weird uh, I interrupted myself, and then I'll get back to the Pittsburgh Steeler thing, which is to say the very reveal, it's very hard not to be at all interested in who the person is behind the costume. And the moment when they take the mask off, that's very good to watch. So the beginning's great. The end is great. Almost everything in the middle either can be improved or just doesn't work at all. But I will say this. I, something hit me when the two Pittsburgh Steeler players were revealed. There was an episode of Taxi where Martin Short played a TV executive, okay? And he's in the back of Jim Ignatowski's cab. And uh, Jim somehow turns out to be, you know, uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd. Jim turns out to be a TV programming genius, the kind of stoner, not, the definitely stoner ex-hippie. And uh, Martin Short says to him, well, we have two specials. One we know is going to do great numbers, which is our favorite soap opera. We're putting it in primetime. Another is... The Pittsburgh Steelers sing. And Jim correctly says, oh, the Pittsburgh Steelers sing will do great ratings. And here we are, like, what is this, 30 years later? And Jim from Taxi was right. The Pittsburgh Steelers sing does boffo ratings. Um, I need to know what Julia Turner thinks of the show. I hate so much about reality shows because of the just built-in time wastery of them where they preview what's happening next and they I found actually watching this on Hulu that you could just use the 30 seconds forward button Mm -hmm. like extensively to get to just the performances and the judging riffs and get past the like parts where they zoom in on a Chiron and are like who is that or whatever they say like it it you you can you can pep it up but you know there there's basically nothing that will get me to spend my already limited recreational television watching time watching a reality show 
However, if I were ever going to fall hook, line, and sinker for a reality show, it would be this one. I am obsessed with the look of it and the just fundamental ludicrosity of the premise and the hook of it, which is not who's going to win, who's best, like the fact that it has all of America guessing who these B and C list celebrities are. And it's like a little, you know, we're all collectively doing a crossword puzzle together as opposed to having to pretend that we're actually watching people fall in love or having to pretend that um, anything that you make in the artificial circumstances of having like 50 minutes to make an oyster flambe or whatever the hell they do on cooking shows. Um, there's this fundamental pretense in most reality shows where you're trying to seriously consider the underlying endeavor. And the show this reminds me most of is Lip Sync Battle, where you're getting already famous people to do something that's fundamentally useless. Even Dancing with the Stars, I think, takes the like athletic journey of the people fairly seriously. But um, this is most like Lip Sync Battle or Celebrity Lip Sync or whatever that show is called, where you just are getting to watch charismatic performers goof around. But this time they're goofing around in these bonko Mad Max Fury Road slash Vegas costumes. And it's 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 spectacular in the spectacle word. And I love that America loves this show. Like it makes me happy that this show is doing great ratings. And I also think it'll be fun now that it's a bona fide hit to see the grade level of the celebrities go up. Like I, I feel like you might see real musicians in the mix in future seasons. Not there have been some musicians already, but you know, actual star power people. Right. And then it's also the relationship between the sort of, you know, grade level of the celebrity, you know, A, B, C, or D, and the anonymized performance, some of which are astounding, right? Like there are people, the one thing that I find really legitimately interesting is this, you know, kind of speaking in gross overgeneralizations, my suspicion is most people who become famous deserve it at some level and who at least remain famous have a degree of professionalism and understanding of what it is to be a professional. I mean, just to be likable on camera isn't enough. It's about showing up, hitting your mark. They know the difference between someone who's trained, who isn't, who's pure charisma, who's got technique or whatever. And the banter between the panelists, kind of half under their breath, but caught on mic while the person is performing, when they immediately pick up on the way the person holds themselves, the way they sing, the force of their voice, the accuracy of their voice, the relative soulfulness of the voice, the moves, they they immediately begin guessing the degree of training the person has and experience the person has um, directly opposite to singing. I'm going to be really, really, because some, some people come out and clearly are professional singers you can there's just a way that you cannot sing uh if you're not trained um and if you don't have uh experience and to me that's going to be really interesting like you know does z-list celebrity was z-list celebrity actually an amazing theater jock at a fairly high level in college or uh in summer stock and beyond and we never knew that about them right so even though it's like a z-list celebrity and that's not that interesting the fact that they can belt a show tune with a degree of kind of perfection and 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 feeling to me that's going to be really interesting too i have to admit though i'm with you julia this is like a fast forward special you can even go on youtube and see all of the reveals in a in a montage uh after i watched one and a half episodes that's where i went yeah it's hopelessly (laughs) padded but that's true of every reality show it could easily be half an hour instead of a full hour well i think i have a couple theories about reality shows in this um 
I do think that by season three, we will have lost our appetite. I think it's more of a sugar high, unless there is a major overhaul. And I think the flaws in the middle of the show, first of all, the panel um, as just in terms of uh, talent and how much they add to the conversation, not much. You have anti-vaxxer Jenny McCarthy, who I can't take on any level. You have Ken Jong, who's not funny, not quippy. Uh, this was made clear when an actual funny person, um, Joel McHale, sat next to him. It was much better. You have Robin Thicke. He's fine. And you have uh, the woman from the Pussycat Dolls, who seems pretty good on movement. But they don't add much. And I noticed that the camera isn't on the performance, the performers for most of the time. There's a lot of quick cutting between reactions, a second or two of the performance, background singing. So they know that the actual act in the middle of the show isn't that good. My, my major theory about reality shows is that there are reality shows for people who are actually skilled. And what those shows owe the people in the audience is the best, fairest way to get at who is the most skilled or at least who adheres to their definition of, say, Top Chef the most. Then there are reality shows for people who aren't skilled, like Celebrity Apprentice. And that's and those aren't shows I like generally, but that's all cooked and made in editing. Every once in a while, you have a show like this or Dancing with the Stars, where it is a combination of the skill and unskilled. But with Dancing of the Stars, we at least know that. So we know Penn Jillette is not going to be as good a dancer as Christy Yamaguchi, but we grade for that. With putting these people in masks and not knowing who they are and not getting the thrill of, oh my God, look what Terry Bradshaw or Antonio Brown is doing, it's it's robbing us of a little bit of the excitement of that. I just think that there's an incoherence in the actual performances and the actual guessing game that they play about the performances that could be remodeled in some way. And if they don't, I think we're going to tire of it quickly. Well, also the difficulty of the clues is it feels at various times like they're pretending not to guess the obvious person. Yup. Um, and maybe they're not, but it's... And, and I, did, I, I will confess that I did read Lindsay Weber's post for Vulture, guessing who all the people were with a lot of acuity, I think. I mean, I, I haven't actually followed her accuracy record on all the reveals, but I think after the second week when all the characters had been introduced, she made guesses as to each, who each of them were, many of which have borne out. And they seemed super um, plausible and obvious. So then watching the show, you're like, how are you not saying Ricky Lake? How are you not saying Donny Osmond? How are you not saying... Whomever. I, I I had no guesses whatsoever. Maybe I'm just I my my D list celebrity culture is not up to date. But my favorite singer so far has been the monster. I really want to know who the monster is. His costume is adorable. He looks like a, a Monsters Inc. sort of fuzzy alien dude. And I don't know if he's a professional singer or not. But I, I felt like it's really hard to sing from within a costume that massive. He almost mm -hmm. didn't have a, a defined head that was separate from his body, and yet managed to get a lot of interpretation into his Queen cover. Yeah, and he does a nice foot shuffle. We think that one's T Pain, is that right? That's what that's what something I read on the internet suggested. What do I know? <laughs> there you go. Turn out if it's like you know, what what would happen if it's like Butros Butros Golly, you know? Totally throwing us <laughs> for a loop. <laughs> well, can I can I pose a pose a alternate reality reality show that will never exist but that I would like? Yes. I would enjoy this with podcasters. Pesca, I would like you to host a version of this show, uh -huh. which is like the voices of podcasting coming out and doing a bunch of scripted banter. Uh, and um, I just I'm ready to go to that gala event. <laughs> so there's a trio. One, to, one recommends pies in upstate New York. Who is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Unicorn versus very monster. nice Portuguese. <laughs> um, all right. Well, the show is uh, The Masked Singer. 
and our guest is Mike Pesca. I can reveal to you now was Mike Pesca in the Mike Pesca costume. You do sort of wear a Mike Pesca costume, don't it's you? It's true. It's true. We all wear wear a uh, costume in life, but I literally do because I'm really into cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem like the the Venn overlap between our listeners and watchers of the show would be all that great, but I mean, prove me wrong. I'm very curious. Come to us uh, on our Twitter feed at Slate Cult Fest and tell us what you think of this crazy potpourri of reality TV idiocy. <laughs> All right, moving on. A couple cans of chickpeas, a couple cans of coconut milk, a handful of other basic ingredients, and nothing much by way of innovative technique. And suddenly you have not just a meal, not just a yummy spiced chickpea stew with coconut and turmeric, but a viral sensation. Um, Julia, this is not the first recipe by Alison Roman of the New York Times to go viral. This one, but this one went sort of super viral on Instagram. What is it about this recipe you think that did that? And uh, what what do we make of uh, viral recipes in general? Uh, I guess I have a couple of theories about what made this particular recipe go viral. Uh, you know, one of the problems with making a big, hearty, wintry stew. Obviously, there's many benefits, like the ability to eat a big, hearty, wintry stew. Um, is that you lack freshness, right? You've got this kind of overcooked, overstewed, sometimes sweet, gushy, mushy flavor. There's no brightness or crispness. And so the notion of stirring in as many greens as she suggests here, rather than making a side salad, which is, I think, maybe the more traditional thing that you might do to give yourself a little bit of that fresh, crisp brightness, um, feels like part of it to me, that that there actually is like one tweak on a basic here that's not unprecedented in the history of human food consumption, but I don't see as like a basic part of most stew recipes. So you've got here a vegetarian dish that sort of has all in one dish. It's sort of a one pot dinner, right? Because you've kind of got the greens, you've got the dairy, you've got the protein, um, you've got flavor. It's there you go. It's kind of Instagrammable. Um the, the, that that twist on a basic thing seems like part of what makes these things go viral. And Alison Roman's previous uh, viral recipe, the chocolate chip shortbread cookies, was a similar thing, right? Who hasn't made chocolate chip cookies if you've ever cooked in your life? It's probably one of the first 10 things you make. Um, but the actual technique for making them in her recipe was quite different. It, it involved rolling out a log of the dough because shortbread dough is crumbly in a different way and then slicing it and um, you ended up with a twist on a basic. So there's like a twist that makes people want to try it and then you have to assume like a pretty consistent level of deliciosity in the result plus probably um, a little bit of foolproofery like it's delicious even if you mess it up this way or that way and I imagine that the stew is actually more forgiving than the chocolate chunk cookies just because cooking is um, more open for interpretation and adjustment than baking is where you're actually conducting a chemistry experiment and you kind of can't um, you can't make mistakes in the same way and expect good results so to me I think it's the twist on the basic and the timeliness that seem likely to have been the culprits here Dana did you make the stew oh yeah did you I did. Yeah. Okay, we should compare results. So yes, I did make the stew. Um, 
Yeah, I, it, I'll put it this way. There's still a large container of the stew in my refrigerator. My family did not swoon for the stew. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I made it with a lot of, of variations, as we were encouraged to in planning this segment, since the whole idea is that what Roman is presenting is is not a recipe, but a method of cooking. And really, it's just basically a, a, a classic curry. You know, it's sort of curried chickpeas, not because it mm-hmm. contains the right. spice called curry, but, you know, it's that sort of slurry of onions, garlic, and ginger, and you throw some spices on top, and that's your flavor base, and then you put in your things and your liquid and stew it all together. Uh, I would radically change the proportions of things in this stew if I made it again, like make a lot more of the the flavor base elements. And uh, and definitely, as Brian Lauder wrote in Slate when he reviewed this this recipe, it needs something bright at the end for sure. It's it's all, I don't know if you say dark flavors. I guess you do, right? There's bright flavors, so there mm-hmm. must be dark sure. flavors. But yeah, this would be sort of all dark flavors if it didn't have um, a squeeze of lemon at the end or a little splash of vinegar or something like that. I ended up squeezing a whole lemon into it and kind of doctoring it in that way. But yeah, it's, it's the, the nice thing about that recipe, what it reminds me of, and I don't know if this recipe was considered viral or not, but I know a lot of people who make it, was Mark Bittman's granola recipe that was published years ago. I mean, maybe even 10 years ago or something like that. And it still is the template in my mind for how granola is made. And I no longer have to look at his recipe, but I think I'm still basically using those proportions as I'm dumping in my sweetener. And you just sort of realize, oh, all granola is, is a bunch of oats and nuts stuck together with sticky things and toasted in the oven. And in the same way, what you realize in making this stew, if you didn't already know it, I mean, if you've made some basic dal or other Indian dishes, you already know it. But it's, oh, what a curry is, is that oniony flavor base with some spices and then with your your objects and your liquid all cooked together. It is one pot and it's easy and it's a good reminder that if you have a can of beans and a can of coconut milk, mm-hmm. you can right. basically make a dish. Oh, but I didn't use chickpeas. That's important. It's a chickpea <laughs> stew. And everyone in my family, including me, considers chickpeas, unless they're mushed up in hummus, to be a sub standard food that's sort of too gritty and sandy to be enjoyable. So I made it with white beans from a can, cannellini style. And I would do that again. What about you? Um, well, I really liked it and there's a lot left over, um, uh, which I like that it, um, uh, you know, gives you a fridge full of leftovers. I, I think both of you are onto something about where the virality comes from, kind of a, a sort of, you know, basic blueprint or template upon which one can impose one's own tastes and variations and, um, brightening it with acid is something I'm definitely going to do. In fact, when I heat it up for lunch, I'll do that. I love also, by the way, so I like the big, obviously the stew pot, single pot dish. I love starting with the, you know, the curry version of the mirepoix or whatever, like some ginger and onion and garlic and building on that, doing it all in one pot. But most of all, I love adding the charter that I use Toscano kale, uh, right at the end, my what I would change is, um, in other words, kind of a softening, heating up and softening your salad green in the dish at the end is is like I love doing that in the winter. Um, so next time I'll probably just lighten it up a little bit and you know use use a sub in you know slightly lighter lighter ingredients. Dana, I can't believe you were concluding that this recipe is subpar, having made it with white beans, which it's totally different, <laughs> but. But I love um, white beans. Also, that was the good part of it. I'm not putting down the recipe. I would make it again, but I would I would make so many adjustments that it would essentially not be the recipe, which I guess is the whole idea of why it went viral. It's a very forgiving recipe that basically as long as you throw in three or four basic ingredients, you can toss in almost anything else in your cupboard. I did not make the recipe. I was not as inventive as Dana. I 
do not like chickpeas and basically can't digest them. And so I was going to try to make it for dinner last night. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to cook for however long it takes and not be able to eat for as soon as I want. And it's still going to be chickpeas. Forget it. Even though I am chastising you, I should have um, probably made the same substitution that you did. Um, but I I think viral recipes are really fun because I like purchasing cookbooks full of things I want to try. But I cook seldom enough. And for me, the opportunity cost questions about cooking, is it really worth gathering the ingredients and taking the time? Um, I want to know that I'm going to like the result and that the result is good and that this is a recipe that works. And there are just durable recipes that work and there are ones that are kind of not worth it. And the having people get socially excited about a recipe um, you know, or comment on a recipe in the in the comment section in, in a useful way, that sense that there's someone out there vouching for it, like a friend being like, hey, try this one. It totally works. It's foolproof. Um, I love, I love because it feels like, ah, okay, let me bookmark that one. I'll give that one a shot. And then of course you end up adjusting and amending it. I mean, the recipe I've probably made the most times in my life is Mark Bittman's sardine pasta, which is a very good concept for a kind of cab- kitchen cabinet dinner but I like triple the lemon, double the parsley, add hot pepper flakes so it's got a little kick to it. You know, I you, you, I have my own version of it now that I make that's distinct enough from his and his ratios that it's probably its own recipe. But he's the person who gave me the idea of doing that with the sardines on the back shelf in my cabinet. So it's that, I don't know, to me it's the notion of like someone else out there testing it for you beyond just the person whose job it is to make up recipes for you and claim that they are good, that I like. Um, Steve, I'm curious because you are a cook. You cook for your family, right? You're probably more of a cook Mm -hmm. for your family than I am. Um, Yeah, I do cook, yeah. So how has the internet affected your cooking? Do you often research a recipe? Do you get a vague idea in your head? Oh, I want to do something with, you know, this or that ingredient and go searching for it? Or are you still a cookbook guy? Oh, no, no, no. Very much an internet guy. I mean, I start and I start with a vague craving or a couple of ingredients in the fridge and um, and take it from there. And what I love is that it's so easy to intuitively pick out a recipe that you think is going to work from the infinity of results that you get when you throw your search terms into Google. Common characteristic is something that you can tinker with. Right, so it can't be fussy, highly specific, and elaborate. Um, it has to be kind of, you know, a pretty simple architecture, and then you can kind of sim city it out as you see fit, uh, based on what you have or what you have access to. So, like a pork tenderloin stir fry, stir fry. My kids love stir fries for some reason, and you could probably wing it, but you know, just throw it into Google and like two or three come up and you sort of play with one and add one to the other. So no, 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 I, I haven't opened a cookbook. I've been cooking a fair amount lately. I haven't opened a cookbook in years. Oh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm i just realizing as you say that, I mean, I don't cook nearly as often as you, I don't think, but I don't really like cooking from recipes from the internet for a very simple Luddite physical reason, which is that I don't like looking at a screen while cooking. It's just, I guess you could print the recipe out, but then you've got to, you know, ha- haggle with your printer and your toner and all that stuff. I like a cookbook just because it's a physical thing that you can get flour and grease on while you're cooking and move it around the kitchen. And it's not as awkward as cooking with a, a laptop in the middle of your counter. All right, uh, come to our Twitter feed. Tell us what you think. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse 
when you have Mike Pesca in the uh, studio in the vicinity, you uh, you corral him and you ask him to endorse. Uh, Mike, thanks for sticking around. Uh, what do you got? So my endorsement is the TV show Taxi. It should be on the list of one of the five best sitcoms of all time, though, just like all peak TV, we're living in a land of great sitcoms. But for a while, it was by far the best sitcom on TV with the quintessential ensemble cast. Uh, I will recommend two specific episodes. Many of these are online. Uh, we were watching them uh, at the in GIST headquarters. Uh, one is when Mary Lou Henner's character, Leonardo, is dating Wallace Shawn. And he plays a character named Arnie. And he doesn't know how to deal with her kids. So he essentially comes over and bribes them. And the reason I was playing this for my producer and one time uh, Culture Gap Fest producer, Daniel, was for my Super Bowl party, he came over and my kids handed him back his coat and he tipped them a dollar each. And I'm like, you can't give kids cold, hard cash, which is an exact line from that episode. But the greatest episode of Taxi, in fact, the greatest scene, this, this is right up there with the greatest scene in sitcom history. And guys, tell me if you know it. It's when Jim Ignatowski takes his driving test. Have you seen that, Dana? I'm sure when I was a kid I did, but I have no no memory. It is. I I just challenge anyone not to convulse in peals of laughter. It is. Remind me who plays Jim. Jim is Christopher Lloyd. He's the burnout hippie who hung around the garage and Alex Rieger uh, decides to, you know, try him. Hey, why don't we get this guy his hack license? Him taking the driving test is just the most exciting exquisite uh, comedic set piece that you have ever seen. That is my recommendation. Mike, can I just say that yeah. my one childhood memory of Taxi is that I think it has the saddest, most depressing theme song of any sitcom in history. But this was a time like Barney Miller also had it. Also, oh, the- but Barney Miller's had a little jazz to it. That right. sad, is it a flute solo? Yes, over I think the Queensboro Bridge. And if you notice the openings, the opening credit sequence, the taxi driving over the bridge is on a loop. So if you watch the background, it repeats every few seconds. Oh, maybe that's what gives the opening. Yeah, the opening has this terrible, kind of very cheaply made, depressing feeling. That, that always made the, that show feel sad to me, even though the show itself, I agree, is, is extremely funny. It's true. I got to say, I know that we have an amazing theme song by an Oscar-nominated composer, Nicholas Patel, but I would consider replacing it with Dana doing a doo-doo-doo <laughs> imitation of the taxi flute because that was a very evocative sound. <laughs> and then did she snort right at the end by mistake? <laughs> <laughs> that can leave all our, our listeners with the same sense of vague hopelessness I used to have whenever Taxi started. <laughs> Ringtone. Uh, Pesca, before before we lose you, uh, 85 over or under Met wins 2019. Uh, you know, you should always take the over because Las Vegas is full of people who are down on the Mets, uh, um, not exactly logically. That said, we all know. We all know how bad they are. <laughs> It's, that said, they're going to miss yeah. it by 20. That said, 85 would mean they're a winning team, and that seems impossible to me. Yeah, out of the question. All right, moving on. Dana, what do you have? Okay, since we talked about food and cooking for one of our segments this week, I'm going to do a food-related endorsement that involves no cooking whatsoever. This is the food endorsement for lazy people who don't want to do viral recipes, who just want to go to the store and get very un-Michael Polony processed food. Uh, it's the exciting release as of last fall, but I just found out about it last week, of Maple Cheerios. Maple Cheerios. Have either of you heard of or tried Maple Cheerios? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I found myself in the cereal aisle staring at a fascinating box of Maple Cheerios. Um, and of course, my daughter wanted to get them immediately. And 
They're fantastic. I'm, I, I'm not even a cereal person, and now I'm obsessed with maple Cheerios. So I have to tell you some of the story of them. They just came out last fall in the U.S., but they've existed in Canada for a while. So if we have Canadian listeners, I know we have Canadian listeners. I want to hear about how long maple Cheerios have been around, and are they like a Canada thing? They've got a maple leaf, a syrup maple leaf on the front, and uh, they're the perfect amount sweet. They're better than Honey Nut. They're not as boring as regular Cheerios. They're actually really good mixed with regular Cheerios. I, mi- I, I recommend throwing a few on top of a less sweet cereal. Cereal, but they're lovely, not overly sweet, and uh, and my new favorite cereal. I went around on some cereal blogs. It was fascinating to discover that that exists to see how they were being received. And apparently, a lot of cereal aficionados are not into maple Cheerios because they're not sweet enough. But that is precisely what I like about them. Um, so yeah, get some maple Cheerios and throw them on top of your regular healthy cereal, and you will not regret it. So you're a cereal mixer. Yeah, I've always been a cereal mixer. I feel like sweet cereals need to be mixed with unsweet cereals so that so that your milk doesn't get all sugary. I mean, I sound like I'm a person who eats cereal a lot. I almost never have it for breakfast. To me, it's sort of like a writing snack. It's a thing to eat when you really don't want to think about eating and you want to be just be full in 10 minutes. Um, but right, you need, un- under you those need like an extra hour of fuel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And under those circumstances, you don't want a sweet, sugary, sticky thing, but you also want something with flavor. So yeah, I usually have a few cereals in the cabinet and throw a flavorful one in with a healthy one. Mm. Julia, what do you have? This also might fall under the Julia Turner category of like the sky being blue endorsements. But for some reason recently, I've been allowing my Spotify to play me its custom curated playlists for me. And I don't know why I didn't try this before. I just would listen to whatever my current mix was on repeat shuffle forever and ever and ever if I weren't listening to a podcast or listening to an episode of Law and Order SVU. And they're really good at surfacing music that I should know about and might like. And one of the songs, It Surfaced For Me, about which I know nothing at all, uh, is a song called Have a Heart by a band called Symbols Eat Guitars. Symbols, C-Y-M-B-A-L-S. And it's a bop. And... Spotify told me about it. Congratulations to my new musical friend with taste, the artificial intelligence at Spotify. I agree. Algorithmic music choice is has gotten really refined. I mean, they can actually predict your taste with almost mortifying clarity. Yeah, I never found the Pandora one. Like, I, I just tried Pandora 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And I it surfaced some good stuff for me, but I didn't. it didn't feel quite on the money in the same way. And I guess a decade's worth of invention and innovation and a bigger corpus of music for it to learn from probably helps. But... I mean, digital music has only been good for me. Like, I, I think I've spoken about this in the podcast before, but the the kind of barrier to entry of reading about music and it being so distant from hearing it f- that I experienced as a kid in the 90s was so alienating and felt like there were all these gatekeepers and I had to find the trusted source to tell me what songs were good and the notion that you can just go click on anything and hear it and see if you like it is so radical. And this feels like an extension of that, of like, here, you don't even have to do any work. Let's just throw some tunes at you and you can just hit next if it's not, if you're not feeling it. 
The fact that you don't need criticism. Right. The gatekeepers need a job. Yeah, you just need to click it and like it. If you take out the recommendation part of criticism, you just kill the market for criticism. I mean, mm. it's it seems like a compelling argument to me. And right now there's, I mean, Pitchfork is kind of done and there's not real robust music criticism that you could do for a living anywhere these days. On that note. <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> not even my segment. Our, in, our, in our non-evaluative but criticism-based podcast, uh, uh, I will um, endorse this week uh, the movie The Conformist, the Bertolucci movie, which... Um, uh, I I saw for the first time probably 20 years ago, saw it a second time probably about 10 years ago, shaping up a kind of once every 10 year viewing experience. The first time I saw it, I, I was floored by it and absolutely loved it. I mean, I thought I walked away thinking it was one of the best movies I'd ever seen. The second time I saw it, I found it sort of oddly inscrutable. Um, and I went back with my then 15 year old daughter, now 16 year old daughter, and we were both so captivated. This movie in the age of Trump, it's essentially the story of that aspect of fascism that allows it to become ascendant that's rooted in human weakness and kind of existential um, spinelessness in a way, or or it, it's, it's like such a deep examination of the kind of weakness that allows, author, you know, authoritarianism and, and kind of uh, a systematized human cruelty to become ascendant in a culture. And it, you know, it's about the interwar period in Italy. And it's just, it, it's a, it, it is the most, exqui- it, it, among the most exquisitely shot movies that I've ever seen. Uh, I guess maybe I've just become more used to non-linear linear storytelling. It's actually quite a straightforward story about the ex-student of a professor becoming a quizzling and, um, and betraying him. And, and, but it's also this fantastic love triangle. I mean, it's, it's talk about movies like Barry Jenkins that involve human sensuality with political intrusions massive political intrusions um anyway bertolucci's the conformist in the age of trump is a riveting viewing experience for anatomizing how not doing the right thing a kind of passivity and a kind of self-pity do as much to create nightmare social outcomes as do aggression uh will to power um you know and uh the desire to you know just essentially dominate and win um anyway check it out the conformist Dana, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And of course, you can email us. We love getting your email at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, we do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner and, of course, Mike Pesca, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.